This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. The day is not far off when the economic problem will take the back seat where it belongs and the arena of the heart and the head will be occupied or reoccupied by our real problems. The problems of life and human relations, of creation and behaviour and religion. The hopeful words of British economist John Maynard Keynes. Hello, good morning and you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. On this week's show, Dr Philip Coleman from the School of English at Trinity College Dublin and Paula Meehan, Ireland Professor of Poetry, discuss the unique public vision of iconic American confessional poet John Berryman. And do we need a moral approach to economics? Philosopher Edward Skidelsky sets his case for the good life as developed in his thoughtful book How Much is Enough? Money and the Good Life. This is a show about time and money originality and voice, consumption patterns and new ways of thinking and living. But first, the public vision of American poet John Berryman. John Berryman was a scholar, a professor and one of the most original American poets of his generation. He's best known for the dream songs an intensely personal sequence of poems which brought him the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Born in Oklahoma in 1914, Berryman's father was a banker. His mother was a schoolteacher. When he was just 12 years old, Berryman's father shot himself outside his window. He never escaped that image. The event haunted him throughout his life and reoccurred as a subject in his poetry. Later he wrote, All my life I will suffer from your anger. Berryman graduated from Columbia in 1939. He then went to England to study at Clare College, Cambridge. In 1948, he published his first book of poetry, The Dispossessed. This was followed up by a critical biography of the American writer Stephen Crane. After teaching stints in Harvard and Princeton, Berryman moved to the University of Minnesota, where his legendary lectures were hugely inspirational to students. In 1956, Berryman produced homage to Mistress Bradstreet, an intense dialogue with the 17th century poet Anne Bradstreet. He considered both himself and Bradstreet to be poets and societies, hostile to their art. Berryman's masterwork came in 1964 with 77 dream songs and his toy, his dream, his rest in 1968. The work follows the travails of an anguished and often deranged character named Henry and is one remarkable read. On commenting on his art, Berryman said... I do strongly feel that among the greatest pieces of luck for high achievement is ordeal. Certain great artists can make out without it, but mostly you need ordeal. My idea is this. The artist is extremely lucky, who is presented with the worst possible ordeal, which will not actually kill him. At that point, he's in business. Berryman's lifelong struggle with alcoholism and with depression ended in 1972 when he jumped off a Minneapolis bridge in the dead of winter. Well, in the centenary year of his birth, a new book has been published 
on the life and far-reaching legacy of John Berryman's poetry. John Berryman's Public Vision, Relocating the Scene of Disorder by Dr Philip Coleman from the School of English at Trinity College Dublin offers a challenging reappraisal of one of the most unique and inventive American poets of his generation. Well, earlier in the week, I met up with Dr Philip Coleman and Paula Meehan, the Ireland Professor of Poetry, who is currently attached to Trinity College Dublin. Philip first gave me a brief background to his life and poetry. Berryman, I guess, is best known to many people because of his associations with poets like Robert Lowell, who was a close friend of his, and also with other poets who are often described as confessional poets, poets like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton in particular. But apart from any labelling or categorisation of the poet, he is one of the most important American poets of the 20th century, especially for his contribution to the development of the long poem. By long, I mean that it has 385 sections of 18 lines each. That's pretty long. His most well-known work is a long poem called The Dream Songs. That is probably his most um, well-known work. And he had quite a traumatic childhood. I know his father took his own life when he was just a teenager. So how do you think these traumatic experiences shaped him and shaped his voice as a poet? Well, they shaped him deeply, so much so that you could argue, and it has been argued, that the language of Berryman's poetry is that way because it represents an attempt to give voice, to give expression, to give form to a fractured and very troubled experience. Now that can be understood both in terms of the poet's own experience, his biography if you like, which is the line that many confessional readings might go. But it can also be explained partly in terms of the various cultural and historical experiences that Berryman was extremely interested in and troubled by throughout his life as an artist. These would include the Great War, of course, but also the Second World War, the unfolding Cold War through the late 40s and into the 50s, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. He also wrote about those events in his work, and I think they also shape the language and form of his work in very profound ways. Paula, can I ask you about John Berryman? How influential was Berryman to you and your work as a poet? Well, I first came across him when I was studying in the United States, up in the Northwest, Washington State. And the course I had signed up for was called The American Iron from Mark Twain to Woody Allen. And it was taught by this wonderful guy, Jim Buscole. And he had been a stand-up comedian in San Francisco before he jumped ship into the academic life. And he just touched on Berryman fairly briefly in the course, because it was mostly a fiction course, but he performed formed him. He did a number of the dream songs and he just laid them out in full like stand-up comedy guise and of course we were delighted and charmed as we were with all his routines from Mark Twain to Woody Allen. So my first experience of Berryman when I went to the library and got the book the dream songs was a very theatrical show off anything used in the grist of the performance of the poem and that's all I would have seen because that's all I was tuning into then. Of course I would have got a big whack of, you know, the hungoverness of some of them, the kind of the, the mind on the edge of this deranged state. But I mean, we were 20s and pretty deranged ourselves. So reading Berryman with a hangover, you'd tune right into where his head was at. It wasn't till I was a, a kind of a, a mature woman and Philip asked me earlier this year, would I be in, come in, along and be involved in the, the conference that I actually came to him again and I brought him with me me to an Asclepion 
I was there on my holidays. I brought him the dream songs. I borrowed his collected poems while I was there. And the Asclepion is a place of healing since ancient times. It has hot springs there. And there would have been in the Bronze, in the Bronze Age and later, a kind of a priesthood who interpreted people's illnesses. And one of the things they asked for was that you first had a dream. You slept in the sanctuary of the god and you waited for your healing dream, which the priests for, no doubt, a few bob would interpret to you. So I had Berryman there and that was the experience, not of the theatricality of the poems and their formal control and engagement, but it was like looking into the eyes of a wounded bear and I really felt for the first time the actual humanity of the man. So I think he has had more of an influence now than he did when I was a young poet. Philip, can I ask you about the dream songs? I know that they're centred on a very interesting character called Henry, which a lot of people would consider would be very close to Berryman, certainly in some of the poems. Can you maybe give background to the dream songs and the variety of verse that we have in it? Berryman started writing the work that would become the dream songs in the late 1940s. Many of his works have this long gestation period Um, including his other well-known long poem, Homage to Mistress Bradstreet. But he started it and put it aside. And then it wasn't until 1955 that he kind of got going on it again. He had no idea where it would take him. I guess this is true of many poets when they start a work. They don't know whether it will be a long poem or not. But I don't think he appreciated when he started writing it just how far it would go. And part of the reason for that is because of this character, this persona, Henry, which he invented. It is, of course, part John Berryman, but it also is this remarkable kind of mask that shifts and changes throughout the long poem. The Dream Songs is a long poem. Henry takes many forms in the poem. He has many lives. There are Dream Songs where Henry is said to have died and passed away, and then he comes back in the next song. He moves across all kinds of spaces, American, European, Asian, kind of terrestrial spaces, but also he seems to engage in a kind of time travel. So he is this remarkable persona invented by Berryman. In the Dream Songs, um, Berryman says that the poem, and he did think of it as a poem, even though it has these 385 sections, whatever its wide cast of characters is essentially about an imaginary character, and he's very careful to say, not the poet, not me, named Henry, a white American in early middle age, sometimes in blackface, who has suffered an irreversible loss and talks about himself in the first person, sometimes in the third, sometimes even in the second. He has a friend, never named, who addresses him as Mr. Bones and variants thereof. He's drawing on the tradition of minstrelsy, which was, of course, very important in early 20th century American culture and earlier, going back to the 19th century and kind of slave culture. He's drawing on that. He's drawing on the blues, on jazz, you know, in particular, and various other kind of popular cultural forms. Berryman was also a very learned Shakespeare scholar, so there's an interest in drama and dramaturgy and performance and theatre from the very beginning of his career and he brings all of that to bear high and low to use those awful terms he brings those to bear on the poem and he sets Henry in motion through the world and beyond it in ways that simply cannot be predicted from one song to the next and often even within an individual dream song Henry's personality his shape his form changes 
his voice changes. And the interesting thing there is, Philip, that the character of Henry and how Henry is presented through the different poems has caused a bit of a a controversy. Certainly the idea of the blackface. That's right. I mean, a great deal of 20th century writing and poetry, American poetry in particular, is troubled by various forms of ventriloquism. White, middle-class American poets putting on the voice or the face the mask of another Um, and for Berryman this centres on his assumption of putting on blackface in the character of Henry and this has caused many readers to resist the poem for what are often seen as its kind of dubious racial politics. Berryman himself had obviously a very complicated sense of what he was doing. One of his major influences was William Butler Yeats for whom of course the idea of the mask was central. So He was trying to do that. He wasn't unaware of the problems but I think one of the remarkable things about his work is that it never shies away from the difficult areas of either personal or social experience and becomes one of the ways in which he can situate a very important kind of public dialogue about the American self's understanding of race relations. He internalises it in the character of Henry. His project did have the support of many African-American writers, including, you know, Ralph Ellison, for example. Paula, on that note, how difficult is it for a poet, a working poet, to engage in the political sphere and possibly run the risk of being misunderstood by the creative approach you take to writing your poetry? Well, there's a sense in which people are really reading themselves when they read a poem. If you read a poem and you see these things in it, you are being read by the poem itself. It's it's examining your boundaries and your place in your own perceived idea of the polis that you live in, the power structures you live within. So a poem can easily be misconstrued, can very easily provoke anger and outrage. And in a way, poets may well be more comfortable annoying people than having some kind of saccharine acceptance that they're word is right. And so I think that it's it's nearly a tribute to Berryman that he called, you know, that he really pushed out at the boundaries. And I suppose the sense that he laid out there on the page, the kind of monkey mind that we all experience in this fraught and really post-apocalyptic landscapes that we, in, we inhabit, this sense of politics, the literary life, the personal life, the lover, the wife on the other end of the phone, you know, he can be quite, I mean, it wasn't just from a racist point of view that people took issue with him. There were a lot of very crude depictions of women and of his crude desires for kind of a disposable sense of the woman as, you know, something that he would use to get uh, further the poem. I think that's true. The Dream Songs is a difficult work in a number of ways. One of the difficulties has to do with its formal structure and its syntax. He engages in a kind of grammatical inversion, which puts many readers off. But as Paula was saying, there are also points of view expressed which are offensive, and they have always been offensive, both in relation to the representations of race and constructions of gender. The kind of sexual politics of the dream songs are very disturbing in places. In one of the dream songs, Berryman says, These songs are not meant to be understood, you understand. They are only meant to terrify and to comfort. And I think that's a very important statement. Berryman isn't the first poet or artist to express such an idea. It goes back to Sophocles. But I think it's important to remember that this is a work in which we do encounter not only the darker side of John Berryman, of course there was one, but also the darker side of ourselves as human beings, as members of a society or societies. They do terrify us in that. There are things in all of us that terrify. But there are moments also of great comfort and solace 
And I think it would be a mistake to abandon this work because one is frightened by parts of it. In the same way that one might say of Ezra Pound's cantos. I mean, here is one of the most despicable articulations of a politics that we have in 20th century literature. I'm thinking in particular of Pound's kind of celebration of, of Mussolini. And yet there are things in that large work which are essential to our sense of, of, of what art can do. And I suppose it's the questions that they're asking and the poetic imagination that they bring to it. Can I ask you about his religious life? And I know that he had a religious conversion experience at one stage when he was in in a very despairing moment. Can you tell me about this and how this gives the reader a window into how he shaped his poetry? Berryman had an intense interest in religion. In his academic life, he taught often in what we would now call interdisciplinary studies or humanities programs. So he was aware of the ways in which certain religious texts from the Bible to the Bhagavad Gita, you know, shaped and informed culture and our sense of ourselves. But this also had a personal side. And, you know, from his 20s onwards, he was on a kind of spiritual quest. In the uh, 1960s, this led to uh, an interest in uh, Catholicism. He did, uh, towards the end of his life, have what he called a kind of conversion experience. It was very much related to his alcoholism as well, I should say. The last book which he saw through the press in his own lifetime, a book called Love and Fame, which was published in 1970. That book is ordered very carefully. In one of the poems, In Love and Fame, he says, this is not an autobiography in verse, my friends, but it does have a kind of autobiographical trajectory. And it moves through the life of the artist in interesting ways, documenting his education, for example, and his various projects, but also moving towards that kind of spiritual discovery, which happened quite late in life, a very intense spiritual awakening for him, which is celebrated in a sequence called 11 Addresses to the Lord at the End of Love and Fame. Now, a lot of his close friends were poets, very talented poets, who also suffered from depression. How do you think this affected him and his depression and his creativity? It has been suggested by some critics that Berryman was a victim of what has lately been been termed a kind of pharmacological culture that first started to really happen in the United States in the 60s and maybe earlier. But certainly um, it's well documented that by the end of his life, Berryman was on a whole range of pills to bring him up and bring him down. I think he was a casualty of that. There is no doubt about it that he suffered from depression, that he was an alcoholic. These are things he acknowledged. But literary culture, American poetic culture, especially in the 1960s and 70s, was very much caught up in a kind of therapeutic, pharmacological dependency. I don't know to what extent that was chosen. I think, you know, there's always the drug and the dance in every culture, in every generation, and the poets get the fair kind of whack of that because some poets really get addicted to the derangement of senses that come with alcohol or drug use and that's right across the ages and the generations. But I think there was a shift in the next generation after Berryman from that kind of sodden alcoholic pharmaceutical depressive zone to one that embraced Buddhism, the West Coast poets, you know, who wanted a space that quietened that kind of monkey mind that Berryman maps so perfectly But there's no doubt that you get the same hit often sometimes that you get from, say, John the Revelator. And speaking of that place where I took him to read him this Mm. spring on my holidays, I went to visit Patmos and the cave where John got the visions that became the Book of the Apocalypse. And the time John was there, there was a mushroom cult. So, you know, people could argue that the Book of the Apocalypse are these mushroom visions. And I mean, ever was it so in 
poetry culture. But in some cultures, that's very managed, you know, like the white colonial mind that came in with Berryman's father and that time of the First World War when he was conceived and born. You know, that mind wouldn't see the native traditions of shamanism and conversation with the gods that was going on. And I, in fact, think Berryman, from this perspective and this distance, he can be put into those native traditions too. Berryman suffered from alcoholism and there is a great deal in his work. He explores this in many poems, but also in a posthumously published novel called Recovery. He explores his alcoholism, his treatment, his membership of uh, an AA group and so on. Talks about that in detail and very candidly. At the same time, I think it has to be said that his reputation since his death has been bound up with that image of the boozy, bardic poet um, sitting in the pub. It might well be Ryan's of Beggar's Bush. But that image of him has, I think, created a very unfortunate kind of lens for looking at Berryman and understanding who he was. He was an intensely original artist who suffered from alcoholism. It's not necessarily the other way around. And I think sometimes one is put before the other, especially in the way in which he's been kind of mythologised. But is that a risk that all poets unfortunately have to deal with? There's stereotypes of what it is to be a poet and one of those is the heavy drinking and another one of those is the mental health. And the extent to which a poet or any artist or anybody, any person can change or alter how people perceive them is debatable. For example, the famous beard, the well-known kind of image of Berryman, that didn't happen until 1966 when he moved to Dublin. One of the first people he encountered when he moved to Dublin was Ronnie Drew from the Dubliners in the Majestic Hotel. They had a residency in the Majestic, um, which is an important word for Berryman. And it's been suggested that the beard came as a result of his involvement with people like the Dubliners in 66. But there are different versions of Berryman, different images, if you like. He says in one of his early poems, A Point of Age, that images are the mind's life and they change. And my view is that we have known Berryman by a particular set of images for a long time, that bardic, boozy, kind of heavy drinking Berryman. That's real and that is there. But there are other images of Berryman. There are other versions of him which I think uh, need to be uh, considered and appreciated equally. Now, Philip, I was very interested to read in John Berryman's public vision about Berryman's interest in W.B. Yeats. He idolised him. He was his hero. Berryman did idolise Yeats. He once said in an interview that he began work in verse making as a burning, trivial disciple of the great Irish poet William Butler Yeats. I didn't only want to write like Yeats, he said, but I wanted to be Yeats. He discovered Yeats um, as a young poet in New York. He was at Columbia, I guess, in the 1930s. He was in his early 20s. Yeats, of course, in the 1930s was a massive international name, um, well-known internationally as one of the greatest poets living. Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, all of these other great 20th century poets acknowledge that. But Berryman had an opportunity to study in Cambridge University in 1936-37 and he took it. And he said later that one of the reasons he took it was because it gave him the opportunity to meet with Yeats. And he did indeed meet Yeats. Finally, not in Ireland, but in London in 1937. He came across to Dublin in 1937 to try to meet Yeats, but he was told by Mrs. Yeats that 
WB was in fact in, in London. He met him there and again he wrote very movingly and full of enthusiasm as a young poet you know, that, that he felt that immortality was his when Yeats uh, took one of his cigarettes when he met him in the Athenaeum in London. So he was passionate about Yeats so much so that when Yeats died in 1939 Berryman attempted to work on what he hoped would be the first biography of Yeats and through the early 1940s he was involved in various projects which never actually took off critical projects scholarly projects on Yeats. His early poetry is heavily influenced by two figures, Yeats and also W.H. Auden. These were his two early heroes. And then he says in Dream Song 312 that for years then, he says, I forgot you, I put you down. That's not entirely true. The stanza shape he chose for Homage to Mistress Bradstreet, for example, is very similar. It's modelled on the stanza form used by Yeats in in memory of Major Robert Gregory. He also says at one point uh, in an interview for the Harvard Advocate that the dream song form is a version of a stanza form used by Yeats. So you can see the various formal imitations and appropriations taking place across Berryman's work from early to late. So in that sense, he was a very important artistic precursor. But there's something deeper, of course. And when one poet chooses another, and I I think there is a kind of mystery to this, which can't be elucidated, which can't be got at by criticism, because the focus there is often with surfaces and patterns. But there's something deeper going on there in terms of why Berryman chose Yeats and why he sought to engage with this figure across the Atlantic. There are many ways of explaining that. Harold Bloom would say that it's a kind of paternal quarrel, a Freudian quarrel, an anxiety of influence. And I think that's part of it. But Berryman thought of Yeats as, as he calls him in Dream Song 312, as the majestic shade. And he's not only talking about Yeats's overwhelming presence in his own artistic development, he's also talking about Yeats's presence across the range of Anglophone poetry in the 20th century, which I think we don't often appreciate enough. And it's interesting now, Berryman has a tremendous influence on Irish poets working today. This was um, one of Philip's projects in relation to the celebration of the centenary, Berryman's Fate, a centenary celebration in verse. And he invited a whole range of Irish poets, and there's also American and British poets and from further afield. But it's almost like dropping a plumb line down into the psyche of the Irish contemporary community of poets, what's revealed in the anthology. I found it incredibly moving. I mean, the patterns are varied. Not everybody related to the dream songs in relation to just the formal shape that Berryman used, the three stanzas of six lines each. Some people went with that, others had free verse and other takes on it. What interested me was just the variety of voices. I mean, some people try and mimic him, but some of the poems are just purely in the voice of their makers. So I think I don't think the influence is directly stylistic. I think there's a spiritual influence in the sense that many of these poems feel more integrated and complete and closed systems of their own. I'm going to read one of the most beautiful poems I've ever read in or outside a collection. This is a a beautiful poem in any context and there were poems that jumped out like that. It's called Our House. Julia O'Callaghan of course is the wife of our lost brother, our dead friend Dennis O'Driscoll who was a devoted Berryman reader. Our House. I'm in it right now. Maybe the satellite of you can detect the sonic boom of me wailing. 
I'm transmitting emergency radio waves to whatever dark matter you are now sailing along in your ship of death. I had a house in Ireland. I had a life. I had a grocery list. Do you see me? Star I'm gazing at. Blink once for yes. And I think there Berryman has given, given, you know, like asbestos gloves, given a form to somebody to pour grief and love and power and all their generosity as a maker into that beautiful form, our house. So you do see in the work of the contemporary poets who include my own beloved, Theo Dorgan, Tony Curtis, even a couple of poets who actually met Berryman, Hugh Maxton and John Montague, of course, who has a lovely vision of Berryman, the pussycat, at the end of his poem. Now, Philip, you end the book beautifully with a lovely quote from Berryman from an essay he wrote on Ezra Pound. And you have let us listen to this music. If we're listening to Berryman, I know you've mentioned that he's influenced a lot of musicians today, a lot of cultural figures, a lot of creators. Paula has spoken beautifully about Berryman's presence in contemporary poetic culture and Berryman's fate gives voice to that. We have 54 poets writing in response to or in in the company of Berryman in different ways. But I've been astounded to discover, for example, the range of recently published novels in which Berryman is either referenced or engaged with. A novel published this year by the American writer Catherine Lacey, a first novel called Nobody Is Ever Missing, which takes its title from the last line of Dream Song 27. J.M. Coetzee's first novel, Dusklands, published, I think, in 1975. The first section of that book has a moment where, again the character refers to a dream song and refers to Henry. Pat McCabe's most recent book, Hello Mr Bones, there must be a Berrimanian connection there. But also then in the world of music, Nick Cave, for example, we call upon the author to explain, there's a reference to Berryman in that. The band Ockerville River have a song called John Allen Smith Sales, which is about Berryman and referring to Berryman's father. Many contemporary bands, artists, novelists, poets have for one reason or another, found Berryman present to their practice and either enabled by it or provoked by it in ways that I think we're still only learning to discover. from the School of English at Trinity College Dublin and the Ireland Professor of Poetry, Paula Meehan. Philip's book, John Berryman's Public Vision, is published by UCD Press and retails at about 40 euros in hardback. And in case you're wondering what the spellbinding music is, well, it's the sublime Quivino Relic from his latest collection, Music for an Elliptical Orbit. I hope you like it. OK, coming up next, Money and the Good Life. But first... Let's take a bit of a break. Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. 
And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on Newstalk 106 to 108. I'm Susan Cahill. Now, if there's a book or author you'd like me to cover on the show, well, why don't you drop me an email at talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's always lovely hearing from you, really lovely, and getting your take on all the writers, poets, philosophers and general left of centres we've been meeting on the show. OK, let's now move into a very challenging and thought-provoking space, our relationship with time and money. In 1930, the great British economist John Maynard Keynes predicted that over the next century, income would rise steadily, people's basic needs would be met and no one would have to work for more than 15 hours per week. Unfortunately, Keynes' radical essay, Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, got it wrong. Today, we're spending more time working and less time relaxing with friends, family, or as Keynes hoped, cultivating meaningful pastimes. Well, an interesting book has recently been published by economist Robert Skidelsky and his philosopher son Edward, which argues that wealth is not or should not be an end in itself, but a means to the good life. The Skidelskys trace the concept from Aristotle to the present day and show how far modern life has strayed from that idea. How Much is Enough presents fascinating discussions on happiness economics, boredom, taxation, leisure, consumer spending patterns and some challenging ideas on how individuals and societies can engage on ultimate values. Put simply, work less. Well, over the weekend, I caught up with Edward Skidelsky, a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Exeter, and had a great chat with him about workaholic, consumer-driven culture in the 21st century. I asked Edward about elements of the good life and how we can all avoid a sense of meaninglessness in our lives. Let's take a listen. We're not advocating idleness exactly in our book, um, although that's how many people took it. What we're arguing for is more leisure, i.e. not doing things for money, doing things because you, you like doing them, you want to do them. But, you know, that can be quite strenuous. You know, leisure in our sense could mean writing books, painting, making music, um, you know, working for charity, helping others. Uh, but the point is, you're not doing it for money. You're doing it because that's, that's what you want to do. So it's not the same as idleness. And Edward, where are we to find the time to be idle in some ways when we live in a very work-obsessed, work-driven culture where it's all about rising to the top of your job? We've almost developed a society where we're linking our identity and our status in the world with our jobs, so to speak. I'm wondering how that all fits into your argument. Well, that's, that's you put your finger on it. That's the trouble. We don't have time for leisure in our sense. We're still working on average about 40 hours a week, which is um, down a bit from 50 years ago, but not very much. And what we're saying in our book is that, you know, given we're so rich, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, as a society, why do we continue to work these very long hours? Why don't we, you know, enjoy some of our wealth in the form of leisure? You know, we could all be working much less and still leading a pretty good lifestyle. So, so why aren't we? And, and we, we offer various reasons for that. But yeah, I, I think, you know, I could completely agree that um, we'd, we'd be better off working a lot less and enjoying a lot more leisure. Now, the book How Much is Enough, which you wrote with your father, pays huge deference to the economist Keynes. Do you describe him as a philosophical economist? Yeah, he was, he, did, he, he definitely was. He, I mean, he began his career as a philosopher. He wrote um, a book on the theory of probability uh, before he moved into economics um, after the First World War. He, um, I mean, Keynes, like, you know, most, most people of his generation was, uh, you know, steeped in ancient philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, etc. So he, you know, he had this very uh, exalted idea of the good life, you know, consisted in conversation, reading books, uh, 
theatre and so forth. And and he thought that making money was was really just a means to to, to an end. It was um, you know not something valuable in itself, but it was valuable only insofar as it would you know furnish the conditions for a good life in this sense. And that's what we've lost sight of since since Keynes was writing. You know we we've come to view making money or you know GDP per capita growth as as a supreme end, and we've forgotten what what it's for. And you you actually say very interestingly, money has no controlling end. And you've looked at happiness research in economics, and it's very interesting to see how Asian countries understand happiness as compared to Western countries. Well, in in in, in China and India, which I, I know a little bit about, not very much. I mean, they they actually had. Uh, you know, rather similar idea to Keynes about the place of money in in life. I mean, it was a very subordinate place. Um, you know, that you know the highest ideal of life was that of a you know a Brahmin in India or a Mandarin in China. You know, it wasn't the life of money making. Now that I mean, that's that's sort of I'm talking about traditional China and India here. Uh, in modern China and India, I'm, I'm not so sure. But yeah, I mean, we do draw on some of these, you know, ancient Eastern ideas as well as Western ones. And do you think how we look at happiness in the West is a little dysfunctional? Or do we have too much expectations on our happiness? I mean, this whole movement of happiness economics, as it's called, has really grown up as, as a sort of criticism of, of the pursuit of GDP per capita. You know, some, some economists are saying, well, what's, what's, what's the good of economic growth if it, if it doesn't make people happy? Which, which seems to be the case. That's what statistics show. And, and so, we, you know, we're in sympathy with its general goals. But we think the, the concept of happiness that's appealed to is much too narrow and crude. I mean, it really just means, you know, feeling good, having good states of mind. Uh, and we don't think that happiness in this sense is the right thing to appeal to if, if, you, if against economic growth. Uh, you know, we, ha- we have a, a more, more substantive conception of happiness as living well. And within all that living well, you're putting forward the idea of a citizen's income. Yes. Um, so this is, this is one of our proposals in the last chapter. You know, government's pay all, all, all citizens a, a small income. Maybe you could start off you know, a few thousand euros a year, um, but then gradually increase it over time. And the idea of this would be just to liberate people a little bit from the job market. So they'd have more you know, choice in what they did. Maybe they could afford to work part time. So it would, just, it would just free them from the from the, the the demand to earn a living. That that would be the idea. And do you think that's realistic, Edward? Not not right now. Um, not in the current climate. But you know, it's good to put these ideas out there. And maybe in ten, twenty years' time, uh, once the economic situation is a bit better, and maybe once opinion has changed, people will start taking it seriously. Now, Edward, you have some very radical policy recommendations. One of the ones I was very interested in was the idea of increasing consumption tax. That's not yeah. going to go down too well. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, this is the idea that, you, you know, instead of uh, taxing income, as we do at the moment, you, you tax, you know, that part of your income which you consume. And it would be progressive. So, you know, it would really kick in, you know, over... 50 or 100,000 euros a year. So you were talking about luxury consumption. And the idea would be to, you know, first of all, to encourage people to save a bit more for old age and also to inhibit this um, competitive consumption that goes on, particularly among the very rich, and which, and which sort of encourages consumption more generally as everyone's, you know, trying to keep up with those a little bit richer than them. Uh, this is an idea from the American economist Robert Frank that we take over. And Edward, there's quite a heavy dose of Catholic teaching in How Much is Enough. I was particularly impressed by the argument put forward by Alistair McIntyre and he describes a new monasticism and
and how we need to restore faith or belief in religion. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've both been influenced by um, uh, Alistair McIntyre's book, After Virtue, and, and, and by the whole tradition of Catholic social teaching, going back to, to, to Rerum Novarum, 1891, I believe. Yeah, I mean, so it's, 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 it's a powerful body of teaching. And, you know, I think it's attractive, not, you know, not just to Catholics or even Christians, to people more generally, um, because it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful non-Marxist critique of free market economics. Uh, so it's not, um, it's not advocating socialization of property. It's, it's very much in favor of private property. But it thinks of private property as you know, a means to individual and family independence. It's, a, it's, a, it's an ethical understanding of property, which we find very attractive. And where does friendship and ideas of harmony with nature come into play? Well, these are two of our list of um, what we call basic goods. Uh, so these are the goods that together make up a good life. Uh, so friendship is our word for all kinds of you know, strong, affectionate human relationships, including family relationships. Uh, we think they, those are absolutely essential to, 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 to the good life. Harmony with nature, we mean some, some form of um, you know, connection with your natural surroundings. Uh, you know, obviously, people who live in very big cities and buy their you know, food from all over the world have no connection with the surrounding countryside. And yeah, this is you know, experienced as alienating. Uh, there's been quite a bit of research on this. So, so um, yeah, those, those, those are two, two goods that we think are, are essential to living well. Now, Edward, you have some very interesting stuff on eliminating advertising, which I think is very utopian. Well, I don't, I don't think it's that utopian. I mean, there are many countries which have restrictions on advertising. Um, in fact, all countries have restrictions on advertising. You know, we, we just need to increase them a little. You know, you could um, prohibit advertising in various public places. Um, you could um, think about ways of funding television so that it's less dependent on advertising revenue. You could force television channels to, to bunch adverts. Uh, they do this at the moment in Scandinavia so, so as to make it easier for viewers to miss them. And there are lots of things you could do. I mean, the idea is that advertising is, is, is one of the main things that inflames consumption in our society. So if you, if you think consumerism is, is generally a bad thing, then uh, you know, controlling advertising would be one way to restrain it. Well, I do think it's interesting where advertising meets or is in relationship in some way to feelings of desperation and meaninglessness and people's isolation in the world or feeling that they just don't match up to expectations that's put out by advertisers of a good life of sorts. Yeah, I mean, we, we quote uh, an advertising uh, executive who said, advertising is the organised creation of dissatisfaction, which we thought was very nice. And that, that's essentially what it's about. It's about making people feel unsatisfied with their lives and suggesting them to them that you know, things could be better if they only bought X, Y or Z. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about generating new desires, desires that didn't previously exist. Now, you say our commitment to personality and respect rules out coercion. Rather, we aim to bias social arrangements in favour of the good life. No political system can avoid bias, however much it proclaims its neutrality. If we are to be paternalists, let us be honest rather than backdoor paternalists. Yes, so we're, um, I mean, what we're suggesting here is that, um, Governments can you know, nudge, I think that's the, that's the fashionable word at the moment, nudge people um, in certain ways rather than others through tax incentives and things like that. Uh, we're not prohibiting any uh, ways of life, but we're, we're trying to make some less attractive, others more attractive, which governments do at the moment anyway, you know, through taxes on cigarettes and alcohol and things like that. Um, that's, that's the idea. So we call it non-coercive paternalism. You have a very interesting title called The Faustian Bargain. And are you very disappointed that Keynes got it all so wrong? 
Keynes had this idea that capitalism was, was Mephistopheles from, from Goethe's great drama Faust. Um, I mean, Mephistopheles, as, as um, you may know, is the, is the, is the tempter in Faust who, who comes along and says, uh, I'll, I'll you know, give you all these wonderful powers, but in return, you must give me your soul. And, and Faust says yes, and he has a wonderful time for 20-odd years, and then he, he, his soul is claimed, except in, in, in the drama it's not. Uh, God wins the bargain. Anyway, so Keynes thought that this was, um, you know, capitalism was like Mephistopheles. So it, uh, you know, we, we, we sort of made a pact with the devil. We'd you know, unleashed all these vices of avarice, envy, greed, but in return for which we'd um, you know, enjoy a vastly increased standard of living. That was his thought. And, and he thought that this was, you know, the end, you know, the ends justified the means. Um, you know, ultimately, the, you know, we'd, we'd um, come off the better. I mean, what he didn't foresee is that uh, in terms of the metaphor, the devil has won our soul. Uh, you know, we are vastly better off, but we, we haven't really reaped the reward, which Keynes thought we would reap. I.e. leisure, the good life. We're yeah, workaholics, still, essentially. Yeah, we're, we're debt slaves. The best of us have no time or limited time for the things that matter, like friends and family. Yeah, we're still working 40 hours a week. We, you know, we, you know, we, 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 we've lost sight of the, you know, the goal of this whole process, which was meant to be you know, to liberate us from work. That's, that's, that's the paradox. And what do you think Schopenhauer or Aristotle would make of our state of play today? What would you think they'd make of our workplaces, our working culture and how we organise our lives? Well, I, th- I think they'd both take a pretty dim view of it. Um, I mean, Ar- Aristotle certainly, I don't know so much about Schopenhauer, but I, I imagine he'd agree. Aristotle certainly thought that, you know, what, the life of work was not the best way of life. I mean, he was pretty, pretty disparaging about it, actually. He, he thought the best way of life was, was one of uh, leisure, or schole, as he called it, you know, by which he meant a life of philosophical contemplation and you know, political activity. He didn't think the best way of life was a, was the life of money making. And I think, I mean, there's a, there's a long, strong element of snobbery in that, of course, but, but, but also an important truth that we've lost sight of. You co-wrote this book with your, with your father, Robert. What was that like? Because I can imagine that got pretty tricky at some stages. Your father is a well-known economist. You're a philosopher. While both disciplines interplay and are in relationship with each other, philosophers and economists can take very different tacks on things. That's true. But um, uh, my, dad, my dad's not a conventional economist. I mean, he's, he's, um, you know, he's very open to, to, to ideas from all fields. Um, you know, it was, it, was, it was on the whole, you know, very... Uh, collaborative and, and great fun. Uh, I mean, we, we disagreed on a few things, but um, but we, we managed to, to patch patch them up. And, and no, it was, it was a marvellous experience. So can we ever look forward to a good life? Or is that a bit idealistic? I think so. I, I think, um, I mean, many individuals in our society do lead a good life. They manage to limit their time at work, pursue hobbies. The, the pressures in our society all point in the other direction. It, it, it's difficult to, to, to find time to you know, do the things that you enjoy. And it's shouldn't be so difficult. So, so we, we were suggesting ways of making it easier in our book.
was philosopher Edward Skidelsky. How Much is Enough? Money and the Good Life is published by Penguin Books and retails at about 12 euros. I really recommend it. It's an illuminating read. Okay, before I head, I have a bit of a surprise for you. The good people at Books Ireland have offered listeners to Talking Books an annual subscription to Books Ireland. So we have a nice handy little competition for you. The question is fairly straightforward. What is the name of John Boyne's new novel? The first correct answer to Talking Books at Newstalk.ie wins an annual subscription to Books Ireland. So off you go. Best of luck. Well, all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Owen Holligan, who helped out on this week's show, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been talking books. I'd like to end this morning's show with some beautiful words from American poet John Berryman, who courageously wrote in the dream songs, We must travel in the direction of our fear. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.